I want to call your attention now to the Gospel of Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. We'll begin reading at verse 31. It says, The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The Lord spoke these words about six months before his final entry into Jerusalem to be crucified. Now, I'll ask you to turn to another passage in the Gospel of Matthew which occurred at that point, about six months later. Matthew chapter 23, and we'll read verse 37 and following. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> and may God bless the reading of these passages of Scripture. These are almost identical words in Luke 13 and Matthew 23, spoken at different times by our Lord. The repetition surely tells us that we ought not to miss his point. And the second time that he spoke these words in Matthew 23 here became the last public words of the last public discourse of our Lord on this earth. He wanted 
all Jerusalem to know his willingness to receive them, though they were not willing to receive him. He says, how often would I have gathered thy children together, and ye would not. From these two passages of Scripture, we certainly can draw this doctrine that Christ is more willing to save sinners than sinners are to be saved by him. And this doctrine that I have just stated is difficult, perhaps more than difficult, problematic for some. That Christ is more willing to save sinners than sinners are willing to be saved by him is difficult only for those who know something of the sovereignty of God in all things and especially in salvation. This is a doctrine that we may think doesn't fit with the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation and the inability of the sinner, which things Holy Scripture certainly teaches and teaches plainly and teaches repeatedly. And we could multiply text upon text upon text to show the sovereignty of God in salvation. You're probably already familiar with those verses or you wouldn't be here today. He has mercy on whom he wills to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wills to harden. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And the clear statement of the Grace of God in a sovereign way in Romans eight twenty nine and 30, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Ephesians 1, on and on. We saw some scriptures in the previous hour that show that faith is a gift from God given to his chosen. <clears throat> And so, it is to those who understand that, that it's difficult for us to understand and reconcile that Christ is more willing to save sinners than sinners are to be saved by him. Those of free will theology have no confusion here, at least in their thinking, Because they simply say, well, God is trying to save everybody, but he cannot because many and really most won't let him. And so his hands are tied and that's the end of the story. 
No, this doctrine that I have expressed here and that these passages before us clearly show us are difficult only to Calvinists. But we must be honest with Scripture and let it speak. Even when we may not perfectly understand it. You know, the, uh, the Arminian ignores the texts that upset his system and that make him uncomfortable. And so he presents just his selected texts as if they were all of the truth. The hyper-Calvinist does the same thing. He ignores the passages that don't fit with his system and that make him uncomfortable and presents only his favorite passages as if they were all of the truth. Both extremes make the same mistake in that way. One says, I can see out of this eye, so I'm going to cover this one up. The other one says, I can see out of this eye, so I'll cover this one up. And the biblical Calvinist, if I can use that nickname, says, I can see better with both eyes open. And we want to see what the scriptures teach us here about God's willingness to save. We've seen two of them here already in Luke 13 and Matthew 23, almost verbatim from the lips of our Lord. And my concern today is especially evangelistic. It is for those who are unsaved, who may be confused on this, who may have some inkling and some fragmentary understanding of the sovereignty of God. You know that you cannot save yourself and that only God can save you. But you may not be sure that he wants to save you. I want to tell you as clearly as I can today on the authority of the word of God, God wants to save you. If you die in your sins, it will not be his fault. For he has made it abundantly clear that he is willing to save you. You will have no one to blame but yourself if you die in your sins. To reinforce this point, I want to look at several scriptures, and if you want to turn and read them with me, you can. Of course, if you'd rather just jot them down and look at them later, that's fine, or, and just listen as I read. But consider many texts here that show God's desire indiscriminately for the good of souls, which, at least in many 
as in, in many cases, this desire and this willingness did not ultimately come to pass. I begin with Deuteronomy 5.29, which is Moses retelling to a new generation what happened at Mount Sinai to their fathers. And he says that God said to me, Oh, that there were such an heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Here is an exclamation <clears throat> from God's own lips. Oh, that Israel had this heart to obey. Similarly, we see this in the song of Moses. And he and Moses is giving us God's word in song here. And very similarly to the previous passage, he says... Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. In Psalm 81, we see, again, similar words or a similar approach when God tells what he would have done if Israel had been obedient Psalm 81.13 Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. I should soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him, but their time should have endured forever. He should have fed them also with the finest of the wheat and with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied thee. Here's all that God would have done if they had obeyed him. Again, in Isaiah 48, we see yet another exclamation. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit and leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldst go. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me, God says. Further on in Isaiah, we read in chapter 65, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts, a people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, and so on. When he speaks of spreading out his hands to this rebellious nation of Israel, what does he mean? He's not talking about spreading out his hands 
to punish them. It's spreading out his hands to receive them if they would repent. And I like what Mr. Spurgeon had to say here from this text. He says, lost sinners who sit under the sound of the gospel are not lost for the want of the most affectionate invitation. God says he stretches out his hands. What did he wish them to come for? Why, to be saved. In the prophet Ezekiel, we see some very gripping words here in chapter 18. In verse 23, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? He goes on to say in verse 30, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord. Wherefore turn yourselves and live ye. Yes, we read in Ephesians 1 of God's good pleasure. And thank God for that. We also read here of what is called no pleasure. No pleasure in the death of the wicked. Later on in Ezekiel in chapter 33 and verse 11, we read, As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Well, we move over to the New Testament. And we see in Luke chapter 19, in Luke's account of the triumphal entry, our Lord came near to Jerusalem and beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. Oh, if you'd known, he says. When our Lord was hanging on the cross, slowly dying, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is a challenging text any way you approach it. I would just say this at this point today, how many died unforgiven? The 
the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world was required of that generation. God's wrath came upon them to the uttermost. And yet our Lord prayed, Father, forgive them. Much more could be said on that passage, but I hasten on. In John chapter 5, listen to what Jesus says to the audience of Jews gathered there listening. These things I say that ye might be saved. Many of them were not saved, but our Lord's desire in some sense was that they would be. And then he turns around and says, You will not come to me that you might have life. You're not willing to come. That was the hindrance. In Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches to this multitude, Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Nothing needs to be added to that statement. The revealed desire and purpose of the resurrection of Christ is to turn away everyone from their iniquities. Certainly, there's God's special love to those that he has chosen to save. Thank God. There is also general love extended to all to whom these tidings of the gospel come. In Romans chapter 2 verse 4 we read that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. And the, the meaning there is that Lost man should be induced to repent of his sins when he sees the goodness and the forbearance and the long-suffering of God. And it may surprise you that included in this list, at least uh, some would include in the list, of all people, John Calvin would include it in the list, is Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where we read that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And most writers actually connect Romans 2, 4 with Second Peter 3, 9 as parallel passages. It, it is striking to me that Calvin himself does not give the standard Calvinistic uh, explanation of 2 Peter 3.9. His comment here is, So wonderful is his love toward mankind that he would have them all to be saved and is of his own self prepared to bestow salvation on the lost. But it may be asked, If God wishes none to perish, why is it that so many do perish? To this My answer is 
that no mention is here made of the hidden purpose of God, according to which the reprobate are doomed to their own ruin, but only of his will as made known to us in the gospel. For God there stretches forth his hand without a difference to all, but lays hold only of those to lead them to himself whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world. Well, you can wrestle and study and read on passages like this and and come to your own uh, convictions. One more text that uh, I think Mr. Spurgeon at least would include in this list is First Peter chapter. Or, I'm sorry, First uh, Timothy chapter two verse four that reads uh, that God will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Spurgeon says some treat this passage as if it said God will not have all men to be saved. But he says, God has infinite benevolence, which nevertheless is not in all points worked out by his infinite omnipotence. So he treats this passage the same way Calvin treats 2 Peter 3.9. Again, commenting on 1 Timothy 2.4, God will have all men to be saved. Matthew Henry says, God has a good will to the salvation of all. So that it is not so much so much the want of a will in God to save them as it is a want of will in themselves to be saved in God's way. And I'll tell you, that last little phrase there is a very significant qualifier. Many people think they want to be saved, but they don't want to be saved in God's way the way that God saves, and the only way that there is true salvation, which is not by our own works or by our own merits in any way, but by the works and merits of Christ alone. So we do have this tension in Scripture. Some would think it's a contradiction and a disagreement It really isn't that, but it's a tension. How can God love and hate the same person at the same time? He hated Esau and yet loved Esau and expressed that love by sending him sunshine and rain. He held Joseph's brother's guilty of the sin of kidnapping and yet God ultimately is the one that sent Joseph into Egypt Genesis 45 and Genesis 50 we see this tension in many scenes of scripture how could God tell Pharaoh let my people go and yet harden Pharaoh's heart how could he give angry Rebukes to the kings of the earth in Psalm 2 for their sin and yet hold their hearts in his hand. Proverbs 21. 
How can God invite all to come to him when he's the only one who can bring them in? Well, these are tensions in inspiration. And we have to let them stand. The problem is not with the word of God. The word of God is without error and without contradiction. The problem is in our little minds and our feeble understandings. I believe the best answer that I can give to this difficulty is that there are things that God desires that he has not decreed. There are some things that he in a sense, wills, and in another sense, has not willed. That we might say he wishes, but he has not determined to do. And we read, therefore, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, of the secret things that belong to God and the things that are revealed unto us. And we know that his revealed will, his will of command, what he is told us is not pretending it is his will in some respects some would say oh it's only the appearance of a will it's only the appearance of a desire and not a real desire on his part I believe it would be safer to say it's the appearance of a contradiction in our minds Because it is our understanding that is the weak link here. Not God's will that is the weak link. And not God's written revelation that is the weak link. There is nothing in the way of illustration that can do justice to the the tension that we're talking about here. But let me give a very feeble and inadequate illustration. There's a story in the history of our nation during the War for Independence when a British major, John Andre, was captured as a spy. And the story behind it is is interesting, and and you can research the details on this. But uh, George Washington and many of his own officers had high regard for Major Andre. They knew that he had only, on this occasion, put on civilian clothing because Benedict Arnold forced him to in their uh, conspiracy. And George Washington did not want to give the order to execute Major Andre for espionage. But because it was the rules of war, Washington gave the order with reluctance and with some grief. And I know that's just an earthly illustration and you can find areas that are not parallel to what we're talking about in the mind of God here, of course. 
But I will say this. God presents himself in Scripture as reluctant to punish the wicked. It's not as if he is just waiting and hoping that we'll commit some sin so he can stomp us to death. That's not the way God presents himself in Scripture, my friends. He presents himself as having no pleasure in the death of the wicked and as willing to save them if they were willing to be saved. We don't understand it. We must be willing to let the tensions of Scripture stand as written. We must never reconcile what Scripture never seeks to reconcile. And Scripture never seeks to reconcile these things, this secret and revealed will of God. Ian Murray says the problem with both hyper-Calvinism and Arminianism is that both seek to understand what Scripture does not explain. Let me just give a few other helpful quotations here. John Owen says something like this, Though God's redemption is definite, it pleases God for the... for his redemption to be declared in an indefinite way. And I challenge you, if you're interested in this subject, look at the evangelistic preaching in the four Gospels by our Lord and in the book of Acts. And I don't think you will see, rarely if ever, in that context, a distinction made between the general love and the special love of God. And that's what leads John Owen to say something like this, God's redemption is definite, but it pleases him for it to be declared in an indefinite way. Spurgeon said, those who will only believe what they can reconcile will necessarily disbelieve much of divine revelation. They are without knowing it following the lead of the rationalists, end quote. Ian Murray puts it this way. And this is so true. A preacher who calls men to faith uncertain about Christ's desire to save his hearers will never make an evangelist. I'll give you a good example of what Ian Murray's talking about here as far as one who is certain about Christ's desire to save his hearers. This is, and you could read most any sermon by C.H. Spurgeon and see it and feel it. Here is a contemporary brother, Jeff Thomas, in an evangelistic message. He says, here's the Savior. He walks the aisles. He's brought you here. He's sitting next to you now. He's opening your understanding. 
He's applying these words to you now. I have all his authority to say to you at this moment, he wants you to become a Christian now. He wants you to become his child. He wants you to believe on him. He wants you to come to him. I believe that kind of message is true and faithful and needs to be heard. So let none here today doubt the willingness of Christ to save him or her. The very incarnation of Christ, the Son of God, on this earth as a man 2,000 years ago came with this explanatory message, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. The very coming of Christ is a demonstration of God's goodwill. My lost friend, God wants to save you. He's willing to save you. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're willing and he's not willing. And the more I think about it, the willingness of God to save us should stun and surprise and shock us when we consider our guilt, our unworthiness, our deliberate violation of his law, our hatred of him, our insulting of him, and for him to be, in spite of all of that, willing to save us is just a testimony to how great and gracious he is. God will have you if you'll have him. Robert Murray McShane is said to have preached as if he were dying to see men saved. Do you think McShane's desire was stronger than Christ's? I don't think so. Christ has brought the message of salvation all the way to your ears today. Oh, what love he has shown in that. What desire for your salvation has he shown? You need no further proof. Lost friend, come to Christ. Believe on him. His arms are open. Thirsty soul, come, drink of the water of life freely. I'll close with a few lines that Mr. Spurgeon quoted in a sermon, and I think perhaps he's the author as well. These words plow my heart when I read them. Jesus died upon the tree. And why, poor sinner, not for thee? 
His sovereign grace is rich and free, and why, poor sinner, not for thee? Our Jesus loved and saved me. Say, why, poor sinner, why not thee? Are not his mercies rich and free? Then say, my soul, why not for thee? Our Jesus died upon the tree. Then why, my soul, why not for thee? Why will you not be saved today? It's because you're not willing. And I want the Spirit of God to convict you so that you are willing. May he make you willing. Make you to see his willingness. Heavenly Father, We pray that your spirit would work in all of our hearts now. And that you would apply however we need it to be applied. What we have considered from your word today. Give us an understanding of that which we don't understand and that which is a tension. Help us to be willing to leave it there. We marvel in your grace and your goodness. Your your mind is so far above ours we humble ourselves before you and confess how little of you we understand. But help us to believe what you have told us and how you have presented yourself to us in your word. Save the lost. Strengthen the saved. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.